0: Well, good morning and welcome back to the Broadcast for Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder and this is BRN Sunday for Sunday, December 4th, 2022. Hope you're having a wonderful Sunday and a great weekend. We've got members of the media, academia, financial services, and government standing by as we analyze all the news and events for the week. So sit back, relax, enjoy this episode of BRN Sunday. I'll be here when you are Off with a look at what's happening on Capitol Hill in terms of litigation, legislation, regulation. Joining us on the line, you know them as the Legal Eagles, but they are also known as David Levine, Kevin Walsh. Both are principals with Groom Law Group. That's an employee benefits law firm based in Washington, D.C. Gentlemen, great to talk to you. Happy post-Thanksgiving and um, great to have you on the program this morning.
1: Hey on, Jeff, it's always good to be on. And uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna get through December and hopefully we'll see some legislation, regulation, and a little bit less litigation.
0: <laughs> your mouth to your mouth to, you know who's ear. Uh, David, great to talk to you. Why don't you kick us off? What's top of mind um, for you? I know you want to touch on secure for a second. Sure.
2: You know, this week we're unveiling something new with the Eagles, which is, you know,
0: our flash
2: secure 2.0 status meter and will it pass will it not you know this is obviously taking up all the bookmakers time in vegas at this point because we know this is the most exciting thing out there but at least for our at least at least for being with you jeff in the audience we thought we'd start doing this every week we'll kick off and give like well i'll give five more seconds short answer secure 2.0 uh some members have actually been out there saying they're concerned it won't pass I know we were we were probably in the 20 35 percent range before the election we came up to 50. There are some people out there saying 90 percent hmm. I'm gonna hold on 50 to 55 percent for this week because there's a lot of stuff to get worked through and you know Congress has a lot of other stuff to do so I'm not I don't think it's a done deal. Kevin, what's your quick odds and then we can move on to something more meaty? 56
1: uh, percent. Okay, you know, I, feel like on, I feel like I'm
2: on the Price Right. I'm going to say fifty-five. That was, or, or actually, I'm going to say one dollar.
0: but hey, Yeah. Can I can I ask one follow up question and I'll let you get into yeah. ESG? Uh, just in all seriousness, Congress goes on a recess. I think at towards the Christmas holiday and New Year's. Do you know when the session ends? So what? So we don't have. We're recording this on Friday, which is the second. So we don't really have twenty-nine days, right? We have less than that.
1: Well, we have we have less than that, but there's there's things that Congress has to pass. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, government funding expires in the middle of December. I, I believe it's December 16th right now. Um, yep. You could very easily see a one week extension of that if they don't have a deal, which would keep them in town, at least through the, the 23rd. Um, they're going to want to get out of here as quickly as they can. Uh, it's December. You know, everybody yeah. wants to go home. Everyone wants to just wrap up the year. Um, that being said you saw with the affordable care act year we've seen with other years if if they can't reach a funding deal um, if they can't reach a big package then they get stuck working around the holidays and sometimes they have to come back after the holidays now i to me like the thing is that if secure passes it's going to get attached to one of these big bills Mm that's a must-pass bill so Mm -hmm. it doesn't bother me that you know that they they want to get out of here because you know really secure is trying to get on the last train to leave the station the train has to leave the station this year. There has to be a train that we could get on.
0: All right. Uh, well, that's good. Uh, David, you want to add one more thought, and we'll transition to ESG? I'll,
2: I'll add one more thought, and then my square will get off our 10 seconds here. Uh, that's a joke, <laughs> obviously. Uh, part of it is is the secure – if we're talking trains, the passenger car that is secure that gets attached to the train or the caboose – isn't completely built yet, anyway. So that's part of the problem. If the train leaves the station before the before the caboose is built, it's hard to know if it'll get there. So we're going to have to see Jack. But why don't we pivot into ESG?
1: Yes, let's pivot. Okay. So with the rest of our segment, I thought we would talk about a new rule that came out last week by the Department of Labor um, that you know overhauls the prudence and loyalty rules around plan fiduciaries selecting investments. It also deals with shareholder rights. We'll probably talk about shareholder rights another week. Uh, this week, the, the the big story is that the the labor department has made it somewhat easier for plan fiduciaries to take uh, environmental, social, and governance, and you know, and factors that are identified by plan participants um, into account when making investment decisions. So,
2: Kevin, is it uh, really easier? Oh, that's my question. But keep going.
1: Ooh. I mean, I, I think it does make it easier. I mean, it makes it easier particularly with respect to to default investment options. Um, it makes it easier sure. for documentation, but. I I think you're making a great point. So I I think I'll leave with why David is saying doesn't really make it easier. So historically, the rule has been that you can take, you know, non-economic collateral benefits into account as a tiebreaker. So, you know, under the Trump administration, they said, you know, if investments are indistinguishable on pecuniary factors, um, then you can take non-economic factors into account generally. Um, The Biden administration said, you know, nobody on earth has ever said the word pecuniary. Uh, We don't like the word pecuniary. We're going to get rid of the word pecuniary. Um, we're going to keep the tiebreaker test where we're going to say, you know, you can take into account, um, you know, uh, other factors if a plan fiduciary first determines that competing alternative investments equally serve the financial interest of the plan. So it seems like what they've tried to do is, you know, plain English, uh, the tiebreaker test in a way where, you know, it may have been a little bit less plain English prior. Um, so I, I think that's why David is saying he's not sure if it, if it really, you know, expands the world of ESG. Um, that being said, I mean, I, I think it does in two significant ways. Um, first is that you're allowed to take ESG factors into account as a tiebreaker with default investment options. Um, under the Trump rules, you were prohibited with respect to uh, default investment options from using a QDIA, a Fonder product, a model portfolio, et cetera. Um, if one of its objectives, goals, or principal investment strategies included, you know, an ESG factor. So that's gone. So that seems like an expansion. Um, and the other is that the, the Trump rule had required documentation in, in addition to, you know, the, the documentation that folks may use for any investment decision. Um, and the, the new rule says, you know, you don't have to do any additional documentation when you take an ESG factor into account um, than you do, for the documentation you may use for any other investment. So, I mean, to me, I think David's right that, you know, it's getting a lot more. There's a lot more, you know, heat than light here. I think folks are saying big expansion of ESG. I think it's probably a smaller expansion. It's just uh, it's more of a uh, if you're if you think it's prudent to use ESG um, and you're using ESG for non-economic reasons, uh, you can get a little bit more comfortable, but it's not it's not a, a major shift. David, did I did I steal your thunder here?
2: No, you didn't, actually. And, Kevin, I was intentionally teeing that off as, as a softball question because there are people out there at this point saying, wow, the world is wide open to ESG. And there are those out there saying nothing has changed. The answer is I think you put it really well. The DOL sort of stepped back, but they're still inside that kind of like corridor. They're still on the same ESG highway we've been on since the Clinton administration where – the, where the Democrats tend to maybe be a little bit more thra- giving you more lanes on ESG, and the Republicans have a little bit narrower perspective, per se. But they both are still t- talking about it in terms of core things like prudence and loyalty. Although, Kevin, do you think it's worth mentioning the idea of input of participants? Because that was an interesting nugget that was put in the rule.
1: Well, that was, that was something that I, I mentioned kind of briefly in my, my intro here, which was that, you know, it, it talks about, I mean, you know, ERISA has duties of loyalty and duties of prudence. Duty of loyalty is, you know, you've got to have a single mind eye on the, you know, participant aims, and, you know, traditionally the participant aim has been viewed as retirement security. Um, in the, the rule here, it says that, you know, if you survey your participants or if your participants come to you and say we want certain things in our plan lineup, uh, that you can take those things into account Without violating your duty of loyalty, so you still have to make sure whatever they, they suggest is prudent. Um, but that in terms of identifying things that they'd like to see, because they could in- increase contribution rates, because they may support jobs for for workers, for you know whatever reason the participants identify them. Um, this rule has kind of a significant color on the duty of loyalty, which does suggest that you know if if your participants have like a fear of missing out on you know economically or environmentally beneficial investing that it may be worth it for a planned fiduciary to think about incorporating those types of options.
0: Gentlemen, can I ask one question? Um, And I want to ask you – I don't know the answer, so I'm asking. uh, What what bearing does a new Congress have? I I realize the Department of Labor is part of the executive branch. Um, The Department of Labor's job is to do regulation. The job of the Congress is legislation. Um, Is there – any bearing on january and a new congress meaning a new house of representatives um taking control does that have any bearing on this rule because you talked you have talked on and on not on and on you have talked um re- repeatedly about this topic through the years that it's kind of ebbed and flows depending on who i guess is in control of the uh, the white house and and maybe other Um, branches but does that have a bearing at all on these rules or are these set in stone and can't be rolled back so it is what it is
2: Kevin I'll I'll jump in first I'm sure you have a comment too we already know that there that there are some out there and a number of them are Republicans that have made it very clear that they think that the Trump ESG uh, guidance should be what the rule the law of the land is and There's certainly, with a Republican-led House, going to be the ability for investigations, the ability to bring Marty Wolf uh, up on the Hill to testify, Hmm. ask some strong questions, and there will be legislation introduced, almost guaranteed, to potentially walk back some of these. Now, the reality is, is you have a Democratic Senate and you have a Democratic White House. So the odds of any of this being done, changed through, like, the Congressional Review Act, like what we had at the start of the Trump administration, slim to none. But there's always the chance that a future administration could unwind this, and there could be pressure. And also, there's a real division here. You could tell we, we try to really focus on sort of a pure analytical here. Mm-hmm. But if if you look at it, you know, there's there's some jurisdictions around the country where they do not agree with this perspective, and I think you're seeing a lot of that discussion. So I think that it will be a robust discussion. But in terms of setting the rules for ERISA plans – the DOL has it for now, but and Congress may weigh in and may have some strong words to say back, but this is a regulation at this point. Kevin?
0: Kevin, did we lose you? Are you muted? Did I,
2: did I silence Kevin? That would um, be amazing.
0: Okay. I, I don't know if Kevin's still – we may have lost Kevin. Well um, – Kevin, I think you are muted. Oh, we, did. Kevin dropped off. So, uh, well, David, I think we're going to leave it there. Really appreciate yours and Kevin's insight. And I think it's, you know, some more to come. We were really thoughtful uh, or really hopeful. Hi, Kevin. You're back again. And I was going to just wrap it up the segment. I just want to say I think we're really hopeful that um, Secure 2.0 gets on the agenda. I guess we'll have to wait and see. We'll check back over to you next week. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Bye, uh, gentlemen.
2: Hey. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, listeners. Bye-bye.
0: Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future.
2: and my score wasn't where I needed it to be. I called and spoke with one of the representatives and we just had a good conversation and I I liked what he was saying. Just one call for his free credit evaluation was all it took to start back on the track to repairing his credit. I'm seeing the deletions and I'm getting the report, so I know something's being done. It does make a difference to me. All it takes is one call to get started. Credit Repair has given me a second chance to have a better credit score. Don't let a low credit score hold you back another day. Do what Terrence did and make the call for your free credit
0: evaluation.
1: Call 800-819-4152. That's 800-819-4152. Again, 800-819-4152.
0: Welcome back. Now we're going to close out the show with a look at what is happening with the markets and the economy. And joining me on the line, he is the lead anchor for the TD Ameritrade Network, Oliver Rennick. Oliver, great to talk to you. I Hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thanks for making some time this afternoon. Appreciate it. Likewise. All right, let's uh, let's jump in. I think there were some new some new economic data. You want to start there? And and by the way, I want to preface our our segment just to say, you know, we're not here to provide any investment advice we are just here to kind of get look, take a snapshot through art, through Oliver's analysis. He covers this stuff day in and day out for the TD Ameritrade network. So with that as context, just want to remind the audience that Oliver, why don't you give us your assessment of at least the economic numbers that just came out?
3: So, uh, this week we had two big highlights and, um, they were in a somewhat of opposite directions on, uh, Wednesday we saw, uh, Uh, Thursday, rather, we saw manufacturing numbers, PMI and ISM data that were uh, the first contracting figures in um, basically almost three years since the COVID crisis began. Uh, They dropped below 50, contraption in the manufacturing economy, and uh, that's not a good sign. And we can talk about the market response in a second. So that was one batch of data. And then the other data, of course, is the job report, employment situation on Friday, which showed shocking strong employment uh, figures, hmm. and that included quite a bit of surprisingly strong wage growth. So those are your two big economic highlights.
0: Okay, so with that kind of diametrically opposed data, and I think yep. many economists and I guess market followers, and maybe some of oh, whom have convenient. been featured, featured, featured in your show, they're they're probably confused by this. I know I am just as a layperson, yep. But but there has been the hints of a recession potentially in 2023, here we are coming up in the end of 2022. What does this mean? How did the markets process both the manufacturing data? And we're talking on Friday afternoon just to be completely transparent, so we don't know how the market will end. But how have markets uh, synthesized that data, and what has it meant? So
3: this is what was pretty interesting this week. Is um, First, a little bit of context, which is over the past year, uh, there has been – a pretty reliable response to uh, data that has been fairly inverse for the stock market. So when data has been strong and better than expected, stocks have often sold off and gone down. When data has been weak, equities have generally been strong and rallied in response because of the implications of the Federal Reserve's aggression in fighting inflation um moves alongside the data. So if data is strong, the implications of the Fed will have to be aggressive, hike rates, tighten the economy, and that's not good for stock valuations. And so bad data, which potentially could lead to a slowing economy, which you would expect to also slow inflation, could actually provide relief to the stock market because then the Fed doesn't have to hike rates as much. This is happening because the stock market got so expensive during COVID. This is not generally how it works. Stocks move on earnings and valuations, and ultimately earnings drive the course of the market over the long term. But when valuations get very extreme, the stock market can become very disconnected from the economy. And so that's where we've had this situation, where bad data has often been good for the stock market. So with that said, Thursday's numbers – that were bad actually did not necessarily need to sell off, but they led to some market weakness and we were down on the day and the market tried to rally early on in the day because Wednesday we had a big jump in the market after Jay Powell essentially confirmed that he'll drop the next interest rate hike for this month from 75 to 50 basis points.
1: Hmm.
3: And the market loved that on Wednesday rallied big, but then on Thursday, The rally stopped because of these bad economic data points, which kind of makes you scratch your head if you've been watching the relationships over the past year, because you'd say, wait, this bad data should be even more evidence that the Fed will slow down. Um, But that wasn't the case. So you have to be careful about projecting too much from a single day, because then again on Friday uh, we had an early sell-off in the stock market after that good data, which looked a little bit more of the traditional response. But not to make things too complicated, We also had some pretty discouraging semiconductor earnings on Friday that were arguably a bigger part of the tech sell-off that we got on Friday. So focusing back on Thursday for a second, now I'm kind of bouncing around, but the more important thing I think this week is the fact that the stock market couldn't rally on Thursday, even with the dovish Fed tone on Wednesday and the bad data on Thursday, which would all seemingly point to a slower Fed, which is generally what has always gotten stocks to go higher. And so the fact that we didn't do that on Thursday or Friday suggests that investors are now becoming perhaps a little bit more attentive to the risk of economic decline, as opposed to inflation being the paramount concern. If the underlying economic growth becomes a paramount concern, then bad data might just be bad for the market. And so we have to be very uh, aware of the potential for that relationship to change a little bit, Uh, because if it does, if bad data starts turning into bad returns in stocks, then that's probably a sign that uh, the market's telling us the economy is in real trouble. Uh, And so we do need to be aware of that right now.
0: Oliver, um, I want to ask you about tech. Um, That was a driver, you know, through our conversations over the last several years. That was a real driver for the economy. Here we are. I know Amazon just said that they were – Laying off some staff. I think they had cut the whole Alexa division. Um, yeah. Meta previously preceded that by laying people off. Um, mm-hmm. Others. DoorDash cut a bunch of people. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you you follow this stuff way, way more closely than I would. But how is that sector doing? Um, you know, there has been a, a movement afoot to keep people to have people return to the office. So, um, is the tech sector? looking like it might bounce back?
3: Well, they're trying to by way of making these cuts. Um, But these cuts are basically confirming that the extreme boom in growth and revenue from the COVID uh, period is going to be impossible to sustain. The growth rates at... Online advertising companies, online e-commerce businesses, cloud stocks, and anything that was connected to the stay-at-home economy, the growth that they saw during 2020 was so extreme that it will probably never be reached ever again. That's my view. And I think there's good reason behind that. Uh, just think about any business that needed to function during COVID, if they needed a security program for people to log in remotely, okay? any business that wanted to remain open and functioning had to then find a salesperson from one of these enterprise software companies and buy the service. Think about Slack, right? Think about all the, I mean, we here use Slack and now we don't use it anymore. Um, and so all of these services saw this huge adoption rate. And even though some places may not be canceling them, they're already a customer. And so the customer base has, um, never been more committed already. So the potential addressable market that's left out there shrank incredibly during COVID. And so these companies have to cut salespeople. And while that's going to help them tourniquet the bleeding, it is not going to revive sales. (laughs) So you can't revive sales once you cut salespeople. So, This is more just like an admission that um, this sector is in a major lull until whenever the next big economic cycle is, which, I mean, mean, it could be in a a year. It could be in 10 years. Um, And so the fact that these companies are making cuts really is not something to be celebrated. The stock market gives them the benefit of the doubt on the day that they make some of these announcements because it means that the next quarter it won't be as bad, but it is an admission that – We are in a major cyclical downswing.
0: Last question. I want to ask you, you made me think about streaming um, because what what made me think of that is that you were talking about there aren't a lot of customers um, in the tech world that aren't already using tech. Well, in streaming, I mean Netflix pretty much has as many – subscribers as it's going to have, at least here in the States. Maybe there are some in yeah. in, uh, in other countries, yeah. you know, like in, exactly. in, in emerging markets.
3: Because they had their first actual decline.
0: Yeah, and and so what does that mean? You look at Disney, Bob Iger returning to lead Disney. They ousted their – or I don't know if he resigned or he was ousted. They ousted their former CEO. But how do you look at the streaming and OTT market in particular?
3: Well, I think it's actually a very – A really good point and an astute observation you make about Netflix, because Netflix was one of the most obvious examples of this very early on. So early in 2022, it became very clear that there was probably no simpler way to assess the boom and bust nature of the COVID world and COVID economy than Netflix, uh, because it was the only entertainment available to us at home, basically. And so Netflix had the most extreme crash, arguably, out of many of the big tech companies. And actually, it's had a pretty good, um, now, three months or so. The uh, stocks have been trading higher. Some people are upgrading it. It's an important one to watch because if Netflix can really go on a meaningfully long, sustained rally and maybe get back to where it was at the beginning of this year, sometime next year, then that would be a sign that um, you know maybe we really have kind of seen a trough in some of these um, Principles that I'm talking about in the underlying economy. However, I would say that in the moment, the story for streaming is more about profitability now. Netflix probably is. uh, Netflix is not going to ever really be the high-octane growth company it was over the past decade. Um, I mean, of course, unless they get into gaming or they develop some new technology or something. But as it stands right now, the streaming space is about wringing out as much money as possible from every consumer you have. So that's why, of course, Netflix is making sure people don't um, cheat on their accounts uh, and borrow accounts and share accounts. It's why they're doing advertising. It's why Disney is working with um, uh, Microsoft to uh, in their advertising platform that they bought from AT&T to uh, get the best uh, ad content on Disney. It's all about now getting dollars from your viewers. And that's why Netflix five years from now will probably be a great company, most likely, but it'll be a very different company. It'll be more like a dividend-paying telecom stock of um, of this new uh, world we live in now as opposed to a high-growth company. It'll be more like a utility, an entertainment utility.
0: But Oliver, don't you think – and the problem with all these streaming services is the quality of the content. I mean, yeah, yeah they can spend billions yeah, of dollars dollar on con- content, but the content – I mean, I guess you know it's up to the beholder, but the content really isn't that great. Uh, the acting isn't that great. Um, well, I mean that you know, look, I, and I'm not like I don't want to be judgy, but and I want to get your perspective on this because it's about the content. But there's only so many quality scripts, and only so right. many so many quality oh, yeah. actors and actresses. No, I agree. I agree totally. Well, that's, I mean.
3: Netflix has a lot more success with, like, their documentary stuff than they really do, like, I mean, with their docudramas, you know, like Dahmer and the serial killer stuff is, like, huge for them. The um, original movies and stuff are kind of hit or miss. Disney is on the other end, where Disney's original content is its cash cow. Um, But, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of this, people are going to be canceling – and renewing based on what shows are out there. Uh, So we've already seen evidence of that, you know? It's gonna be like, you choose which movies you go to see in the theaters, you're gonna be choosing which streaming service you subscribe to on a monthly or quarterly basis, depending on what programs are available and what interests you.
0: Well, I can tell you one movie that I'm gonna go check out, which is the new Indiana Jones feature oh, yeah. uh, i saw yeah, the trailer looks cool. that looked pretty Not cool bad. and they de-aged harrison ford um, so i'm checking that out when it comes out <laughs> oliver renick always a pleasure thanks for making some time with us uh, for us well, i should absolutely. say enjoy the rest of your weekend my friend thank you bye-bye and that wraps up this episode of brn sunday have a topic of interest someone you think we should talk to then drop us a line and don't forget for all the latest curated news and lifestyle wellness finance tech. So much more in All in One Place. Check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Post. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content? Well, visit our website and, of course, all of our streaming partners. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRNAM. We'll be joined by a very special guest. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes.